Good morning. Last week I forgot my Bible. And then this week I was going to make a joke about my Bible is bigger than your Bible. And then I saw Joe Biden's Bible. Somebody sent me a text on Wednesday and said, I didn't realize Joe Biden was swearing in on a cheesecake factory menu. And I thought that was very funny. Come and follow me is what we hear today. This is the call that Jesus gives to the disciples. Come and follow me. And I think that this is something that we all wrestle with. This idea of, of calling, of, of purpose, of vocation. And the more I was thinking about this text this week, the more I was thinking that this time, this time that we find ourselves in right now, uh, I was reminded of this word of liminal, that this is a liminal kind of time and space for us. Liminal meaning it's kind of the threshold space. It's, it's neither here nor there. It's that space in between all of the other spaces. And it's a time where we are disoriented. It's a time of anxiety for a lot of us. It's a time of a lot of ambiguity, disorientation. Because for so many of us, we feel like we need a kind of clear vision into the future, like, what is 2021 going to hold for us? And the reality is we just don't know. We're trying to navigate so much of not just COVID, but then what does post-COVID world look like? We hear deadlines like, well, you know, maybe by the middle of the summer, things will be more or less back to normal, or maybe it'll be the fall, or maybe if this happens. And there's just so much, it feels like, that's up in the air for us. This is the definition of liminal space. And one of the dangers of liminality is that while you're trying to process and move forward, the only thing that is clear to you is the past, is where you came from. And so liminal spaces oftentimes fuel nostalgia and they try to hold up the status quo of what always has been, which can actually hinder us from moving faithfully into the future. So the question that we have to ask ourselves in these times is, will there be buy-in for the new? Will there be buy-in for the fresh work that God wants to do in our lives? And this requires something else entirely. This requires patience and it requires faithfulness, trusting that God is the one who is carrying us along into the future. Susan Beaumont, who's written pretty extensively on this issue of liminality, of this liminal space, she said that God's greatest work occurs in liminal space. Susan also suggests that when we find ourselves in these spaces, in these liminal times, that we have to center our reorientation around four basic questions, four questions that she would have us ask ourselves. One is, who are we? Two, who are we here to serve? Three, what do we stand for? And four, what is God calling us to do or become next? What is God calling us to do? And this is what I want to focus on today. Calling for a lot of us is a tricky thing. Often we, we think of calling as 
this is God's job assignment, or this is just the part that we're called to play in an act in which we have not yet seen the script. And so we're not exactly sure what this all looks like, but we do feel like we're called to something. And I think the worst version of this is something like God is kind of arbitrarily picking out roles for the world. And so in the arbitrariness of it all, there seems to be this uncertainty to it and an open-endedness to it all. Calling, vocation, what do we mean? Some people get good jobs, some people get bad jobs, and it's really up to God who gets the good jobs and who gets the bad jobs. And when people say, well, why is life like that? We can just say, well, God's ways are higher than our ways, right? And if you find yourself uneasy at all, in the arbitrariness of this, I think that is exactly the point, that it should unsettle us to think that some, sometimes we believe the world works like this, that God is picking some people to do the good jobs and God is picking other people at times to do the bad jobs. And yet, this language actually has deep roots in our faith. There's this call in Isaiah where the king says, whom shall I send And Isaiah steps up and says, send me. There is a task, and the task actually demands a response. Then we find souls like Jeremiah and Paul, these figures that are set apart before birth, as we're told, for the work of God, that they're writing and they're crying and they're suffering under the terrible, merciless pressure of this burden, of this calling that God has placed on their lives. And they're unable, the text says, to ignore the calling. Listen to these words out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. He says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So people like Paul, people like Jeremiah, they're simultaneously unable to ignore the call that they feel that God has placed on their lives, and then they're at the same time tortured by it, almost destroyed by it in some sense. And then there are also moments when we witness the lives of those who we believe are called, and we ask, why does so-and-so have to do that? I remember as a kid feeling like ministry might be where I would end up. And I had a certain vision of ministry, a certain model that was kind of given to me. And anytime I would see somebody like a Catholic priest or see somebody like a a Catholic nun, I would think, man, I'm so glad that I'm called, but I'm really glad I'm not called like that, right? Rowan Williams, (laughs) he is talking about this whole business of vocation and calling, and he says, why does so-and-so have to be a nun? What a marvelous wife and mother she would have made. The irony there being, we think there's a better good for people's lives. There's a more fruitful kind of call for their lives that they could have landed in. 
And so often this is what calling looks like for us, that we actually sacrifice some good to give ourselves to a different kind of good, maybe a good that's not as fully realized or recognized in the world. So we view God as this kind of disruptive force in this way. This is what we see in our gospel text. This is what, if you go and read the New Testament text for today, the epistle, that God's inbreaking into our lives and into our world is all about disruption. It's all about taking the things that we expected, the plans that we thought we had for our lives, and actually flipping those things upside down, and that somehow that's good news for us. For those of us who feel called. It's really easy for us to carry this kind of air of how wonderful it is that God is calling me and how problematic it must be for all the rest of them. And this needs to be resisted in us as well. I remember, again, as I was growing up and having conversations with my own family about, you know, well, I want to do what you do. Well, I'm a fourth-generation pastor's kid, so it has felt like the family business for a lot of my life. And I remember my dad telling me, I think my dad's watching today, so hey, dad, don't forget to tithe today. I remember my dad telling me, if you can do anything else and be happy, do it. I think this is how calling exists for us, that if we can do anything else to be happy, do it. But what we find is that we're not able to. We're not able to. Again, I think that these are often broken ways of thinking about our calling in the world. In the Old Testament, the topics of calling and creating are really closely related to one another. And so we see texts like Isaiah 40, 26, where God creates the stars. And what does the text tell us? He calls them by name. Or consider God creating and then recreating human beings, and he does what? He names them. The prophets, time and again, they say to the people of Israel, God has called you by name. Again, when Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord, God calls him to his service by doing what? By giving him a new name. The Gospel of John reminds us that a a word was sent forth into the world by God that calls creation into being. Rowan Williams would say that creation springs into being in order to answer God's call. So what am I saying? While you and I wrestle with our calling, with our purpose in the world, with what is our vocation, what is our identity, God calls us and sends us out to be. The vocation of creatures is to exist. And second, the vocation of creatures is to exist as themselves, to be bearers of their names, to be who they are in the truest and most meaningful sense. Listen, God does not create a pool of cheap labor. This is not what God is interested in for our lives. People to whom jobs can just be assigned at will in order to get things done. 
This is not God. Each person is called into existence and, and, and they exist with a unique identity, which is much different than just being assigned a task to accomplish. To be is to be where you are, which is one of the hardest things for us to hear in such a, a transient society, in a, in a time when we can go and we can be and we can do whatever we want. One of the most faithful things that we can do is simply be where we are. To be who you are. To be what you are. A person with talents and predisposed gifts and skills with a certain kind of social status and certain sets of responsibilities to lean into that as a child of God. Rowan Williams, who I'm talking about a lot all the time, says this, from the moment of birth, even from before that and onward, you will be at each moment that particular bundle of conditioning and possibilities. And to talk about God as your creator means to recognize that at each moment, it is God's desire for you to be and to be the person you are. It means he is calling you by your name at each and every moment, wanting you to be you. Ah, that's so refreshing. So refreshing at a time when we're so concerned about who are we going to be? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? God's call on your life is to be. One of the problems that we face is that we think God calls us at a certain moment in time. That God's call comes to us once and once only, and we might miss it. This is something of what the psalmist means when he says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard it. It's this idea that God's voice is coming to us again and again and again, and that it's the same word that God speaks over us. And the trick for us when we're trying to discern our calling and our vocation is can we catch it? Can we at any point in our lives discern and be open to what the will of God is, the calling that God has for each one of us? I think if we take seriously this idea that God is faithful, that God does not change, then we ought to think of God as speaking the same word to us over and over again, speaking our true name, speaking our true identity to us. And this is what we try to capture. Vocation, then, is this thing that is happening to us from birth to death, across the whole timeline for us. And what we usually call vocation is only a name for the moment of decision. We think of vocation as that moment when we decided, this is what I'm going to do. Or maybe more accurately, vocation is that moment of crisis when we have to decide what are we going to do. So many of you have been in this position in the last 12 months of having to make a decision, what am I going to do? 
This is vocation. And again, the crisis comes to us when we start asking questions like, what am I denying about myself? What am I refusing to see in myself? What am I trying to avoid in my life? That if the call of God is to be ourselves and to be who we truly are, then sorting out our vocation is all about sorting out what is false in us. What are those things that I'm trying to accomplish to make myself appear to be successful? What are those things that I'm trying to accomplish so that other people will think that I really have everything put together? And when we sort out that falseness in us and we give ourselves to our truest selves, the self that God has offered to us, that is the moment of vocation. This is where we have to begin to attend to ourselves and to the world around us to sort out what is true and what is false. This is something of what we see in our Old Testament text for today, which is the story of Jonah. And in this story, we have Jonah who, if you know the story, is resisting God's call. God's telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and to speak a word. And Jonah runs away from it. And famously, Jonah finds himself in the belly of this fish. And he's running away from the presence of the Lord, as the text says. And it's in this moment of resistance, in this moment of running away, in this moment of denying what God has called Jonah to do, that Jonah's life starts spiraling into chaos. And it's only after Jonah turns to God, as the text says, with a voice of thanksgiving, that the word of God comes to him again. The same word that God spoke to Jonah comes to Jonah a second time. Remember, God is speaking to us just the same. And God's speaking, it is unfolding in our lives in the same way that it unfolds for Jonah. Whether we resist it or whether we are open to it, God continues to speak the same word to us. Like Jonah, I think we are most ourselves when we, like Jonah and like Jesus, are caught up in thanksgiving. And when the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah, Jonah goes and he shares the message that God gave him to the people of Nineveh. And what do they do? The people of Nineveh repent. And not just the people of Nineveh, right? This is the comedic side of this story. But even the cows fast. And even the cows put on their sackcloth and ashes in repentance. That's supposed to be funny. That their livestock is also repenting for turning away from the Lord. Okay. The sad part of this story to me is how much time Jonah spends by himself. That Jonah spends alone. And it's in his aloneness that Jonah is allowed to think all kinds of false and disappointing things about God. Things that he wished would have been true about God, but they simply aren't who God is. So we see in the text, we can read this a couple of ways. We see in the text where Jonah is saying, 
I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. That's one way of reading this text. Another way that I think might be a little more faithful to how Jonah was feeling would sound like this. I knew that you are a gracious God. Full of bitterness and disappointment in that statement. I knew that you were merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I knew that that's who you were. But he's disappointed. Because what he had hoped would happen is not what God intended to happen. And he gets there because he's by himself. This is the other thing about calling and vocation, that it shouldn't, it can't be faithfully worked out apart from community. Rowan Williams would go on to say that all of us have to ask one another at times, tell me who you think I am. And all of us are obliged to answer with as much candor, with, with as much openness and honesty and as much charity as we can. He goes on to say, someone's life depends on it. So with that in mind, I want to close with just a few ideas about being bodies for the body. All of us are here because on some level, we feel called to the church. We feel called to the body of Christ. If you don't feel that way and you are here, I would love to talk to you afterward about why you are here today. But as Christians, part of our fundamental identity and part of our vocation is a calling to be the church, to be the body of Christ. And so we have to know what we mean when we talk about the church, when we talk about the body of Christ. And to know what we mean when we talk about the church, we have to know something about this text. We have to know something about this scripture and what it actually means for us. Namely, that all of scripture, as we encounter it, Every text that was written was intended and written for communities of faith. Even the, the letters that are written to individuals, they were meant and they were intended to be read publicly. The scripture was written, it was crafted to be heard publicly. Most of us have been trained to read the Bible in a very different way, that we read scripture as a kind of private practice, something that we do on our own and by ourselves. But this is an early idea for us, a very recent idea in human history. It's, it's John Darby in the 19th century who he had just experienced a horse riding accident and he's laying up in bed and he's saying, saying to himself, I should read my Bible. And so he spends weeks and months by himself reading the text and he feels like he's received a, a kind of personal revelation to the text. And so he spends the rest of his life convincing people to engage with this text on the level of personal devotion. Is he wrong? I don't think so. Does that have unintended consequences for us and how we view the body of Christ? Absolutely. We should read the Bible, even by ourselves. Absolutely. 
but we read it knowing that this Bible, that this scripture was intended and meant for community, for corporate use. And the misstep that we have prioritized is that it's for personal use. We have all kinds of texts that speak to us corporately that we have interpreted individually. Let me give us a couple of examples. Romans 12. We know this text, and we read it to say, I plead with you, present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But really, the text says this, I implore you, plural, to present your body, singular, as a living sacrifice, singular. What Paul is saying to the Romans is not, I want each of you individually, on a personal level, to offer your life as a sacrifice to the Lord. What Paul is saying is that I want all of you together as one body to offer your life together as a sacrifice to God. Or think about this text in Ephesians 6. This is one that we haven't talked about in a while. This is, uh, for those of you who know your Bibles, this is putting on the full armor of Christ. But again, remember, this is not addressed to an individual. Paul is not saying that I want each of you to wake up in the morning to mark yourself with the sign of the cross and then put on your helmet of salvation, your breastplate of righteousness, to put on the, take up the sword of the spirit and pick up the shield of faith and go out to fight the devil. This isn't what the text is telling us. Paul is saying that there is one warrior who fights for us, whose name is Jesus. This is, after all, the armor of Christ. But Christ is the one who puts that armor on his body, and we are that body. There aren't many individual helmets of salvation. There is one helmet of salvation that sits on the one head of the church who is Jesus Christ. And it's up to us, to all of us, as one body, corporately and collectively, to wear this armor. Last example I'll give in Philippians This is another text we're familiar with where Paul tells them to work out their salvation with fear and with trembling. Again, we hear this as applying to each one of us that I have to work out my salvation. And Father Brent and Reverend Janice, they've already worked out their salvation. But all of us individually have to work out our own salvation. This is how we hear this. But Paul is saying that all of you need to get together and work out your shared salvation. And on and on and on the examples go. But the point is this. The texts that we interpret individually are addressed and intended for communities of faith to work out together. This is why I think if you feel like you're spinning, if you feel like you are at some kind of crossroads or in this liminal space, if you feel like the future is a fog when at one time it was crystal clear, 
We have to lean into community because we are part of the body of Christ. So in these in-between times, these borderland spaces, the thing that keeps us tethered, the thing that moves us forward into the future, the thing that gives us a sense of grounding and vocation, a sense of calling in our lives, is the word of God and what God has spoken over us in community. So we have to sort out who are we going to be. My hope is that we continue to be a community of sanctuary, a community of safety, a community of respite, a community that is free of judgment and free of accusation, a community that has abandoned its fantasies of ownership over one another a community that exists to establish and to protect an altar in the city of Tulsa, an altar that is the table of the Lord and not the table of the church, a table that is to be made ready for those who love God and for those who want to love God more, a community that invites those who have much faith and those who have little a community that is open to those who have been here often and to those of you who have not been here for a long time, those of you who have tried and followed and you who have failed. A community that says to everyone, come, not because we invite you, but because it is God and God's will that anyone who wants God should meet God here. And we know that eventually the liminality ends. There's resolution. And in that reorientation, when it happens, there's a sense of coherence even in the middle of that chaos. It happens when we can, even in the belly of a fish, give thanks to God because we know who God has called us to be and to whom God has called us. So let's be a sanctuary to Tulsa. Amen.